Well, happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. We are broadcasting live from our Bulwark studios. They actually do exist here in Washington, D.C. And I'm actually sitting across from Will Salatan. And believe it or not, Will, you and I had never actually met until like just now. Yeah. Now, although that's, uh, you know, met in the in the present era right. has to be defined as right. meeting in person, right? Yeah, in, in person. Exactly. So we're making eye contact. And I'm, you know, actually having a conversation with a real person in real time. I think it'll come back to me. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm going to remember how it, how it all works. But, but it is great to be here. It is great to be in D.C. We have a Bulwark all-staff meeting a little bit later. So we figured that we would get an early start with the podcast. So welcome. Uh, thank you. And I have to tell folks who are listening, you know, being with Charlie Sykes in person is very distracting. It's very distracting. So, I mean, the, in a good way, I'm going to try to focus on... Uh... Is, is it something I'm doing with my face? Because <laughs> you, usually I don't have to worry about it. This is one of the great things about podcasts. You you don't have to worry about your, your resting bitch face or anything like that. It's just, it's, which I, I think I do. <laughs> I, my wife's always telling me like, why are you making that expression? I'm not making an expression. Right. That's just the way I am. Right. I don't right. have that. I have bitching rest face, but... Okay. So you're not a big Veep fan? No, no. I, I, have, I have a Veep story. Okay, oh. so I, I am a huge Veep fan. I check into the hotel yesterday here in D.C., and they don't have the room ready because they'd had a big conference or something, and people had done late checkouts and everything. So the manager comes up to me and says, uh, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry, Mr. Sykes, we don't have your room. Do you really need a room with two beds? And, of course, I'm like, no, it's just me. And I said, no, I don't care. I just want a room. I just, I will take whatever you have. And he says, I'll tell you what we have. We have this suite. And because you had to wait, uh, I'm going to put you in this suite, and it's very cool. And so I go up to the suite, and it is the Selena Meyer Veep suite. Every picture is of President Selena Meyer. They have books, fake books by Selena Meyer. There are little portraits everywhere, like it's like it's her room and everything. And I'm thinking, this is just fantastic that I get to be in this in this room. I don't know whether she actually ever stayed there or. I didn't have a chance to ask the question about, like, what is with a, a suite devoted to the show Veep? So I just that's not that interesting, but right. it's what I got this morning. Right, but it, then people after you, for them, it'll be the Charlie Sykes room. Yeah, Charlie Sykes was here <laughs> in the Veep suite. And, no, I did not take any souvenirs of any kind. But the cool thing is they have these books by her, or like a campaign biography, and you pick it up and you open it up, and it's just the cover on the book. <laughs> there actually is no Selena Meyer. Okay, so should we start with the soundbite of the weekend? Sure. Okay. Because we are really serious people, we should be talking about you know, the major issues of our time, but instead, because we are what we are, and because Donald Trump had a rally... And the Ohio primary is tomorrow, and this was just too perfect. This was chef's kiss. The former president of the United States, is he in Ohio? Is that where? He's no. in, he's, I'm sorry, he's in Nebraska. He had to go to Nebraska to find another, you know, serial sex offender or something to, <laughs> to campaign for. But, um, you know, even though he's in Nebraska, he's able to comment on, the, on his endorsements in Pennsylvania and sort of his endorsement in Ohio. Let's play that. They're waiting for one race. You know, we've endorsed Dr. Oz. We've endorsed JP, right? J.D. Mandel. And he's doing great. They're all doing good. J.P. Mandel. Uh, <laughs> J.P., we hardly knew you. I don't know. There's so many cheap shots here. Let's try them all. Could, could, could we? 
Okay, so all right, just for for people who who aren't familiar with the race, right? The the two the two guys who were in play for the Trump endorsement were J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel, right? Two, so, two completely separate people, <laughs> two, two very <laughs> different people, at each other's throats, and Trump endorsed one of them, and he's so confused that he not only got. J.D. Vance's name wrong. He screwed up in the worst possible way, which was to name the other guy who he would have endorsed or probably almost endorsed, right? Yes. Well, I don't want to overanalyze this, but <laughs> let's do anyway. Uh, so he, he not only got the J.D. wrong, he couldn't even remember the J.D. So he had J.P. <laughs> and this threw him off. And then he's thinking, OK, there was that Josh Mandel guy who apparently was uh, too creepy even for MAGA world, but he conflates the two. So we end up with J.P. Mandel. Look, this, of course, will have no impact whatsoever, except if you're J.D. Vance, you're sitting there going, this is the entire rationale of my campaign, that I have the blessings of heaven. I have the blessings of Mar-a-Lago. The big guy loves me. He has chosen me, and he can't remember my freaking name. Right. <laughs> Normal people don't listen to a, or watch a two-hour Trump rally. Right before this, or shortly before, he screws this up. Trump is at the rally and he's playing for the crowd a video, an audio of Joe Biden screwing up the word kleptocracy, right? And the whole premise of this, playing this clip for the crowd is that Joe Biden, this shows that Joe Biden is senile and shouldn't be anywhere near power. So this is totally lovely that then Trump follows this up by screwing up the name of the guy he endorsed in Ohio. There's a certain richness there. People pretend like we are really concerned about whether or not uh, the president is losing it, whether or not he's suffering cognitive decline, unlike our guy over here with J.P. Mandel. So this Ohio race, uh, it is tomorrow. Obviously, you know, the upper reaches of punditocracy are going to be analyzing this. What does this say about uh, Trump's clout? I, I do think it's worth pointing out that it's it's basically super Trump fans versus super, super Trump fans. There's one Trump skeptic who appears to be surging a little bit, but it's likely to be a J.D. Vance or Josh Bendel. Well, you've been watching it more closely than I have. Well, yeah, it's, this is a super complicated race, and I'll just try to simplify it for people. And, and I have to, let, me, let me come and explain sort of my perspective on this. So, Charlie, you have sort of a more Republican conservative background. I come from a Democratic household, mm -hmm. and so my attitude towards Republican primaries was you guys, you Republicans, you have a collection of idiots and lunatics and fanatics and cynics, and they're running against each other in your primary. You go pick one. I don't know which one you're going to pick. You pick one, and then we'll run against that guy. Mm -hmm. So the depth of, like, the complexity of getting into a Republican primary, who's who, I generally stay out of. But in this primary, we have, like, as far as I can tell, one relatively sane person who has, I believe, no shot, Matt Dolan. Uh, he was this, moving up a little bit in the polls, but but probably given the fact that it's 2022, it's the Republican <laughs> Party, and right. there's 50 shades of crazy, and he's not one of them. So. Right. And for people who don't have, just to put some perspective on this, they're all Trumpers. Yeah. Everybody in the primary yeah. is a Trumper. But this guy, his sin is he thinks that the Republicans should move on from lying about the 2020 election. And so that's kind of the thing that rules him out, right? Everybody else yeah. is in one form or another yeah. of playing with the lie, right? And the two guys at the front of the pack, or the most likely are these guys, Vance and Mandel, who are variously, Charlie, I, I don't know how to describe it. So like I thought of Josh Mandel as the crazy guy. No one could be crazier than Josh Mandel, who is, as far as I can tell, doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. Like that's one of his big selling points. So nobody could outflank him but Vance managed to outflank him in the one dimension that matters, which is sucking up to Trump. And so Vance ends up getting the, and, and we can go into this, but 
I would argue that Vance is more dangerous than Mandel, but the way in which that's true is a little bit complicated. Because he's smarter or what? It has to do with sort of where we are, right? So my traditional way of looking at Republicans is who is the farthest right on the issues? So somebody who doesn't believe in separation of church and state, for instance, like Mandel, that's super dangerous. You wouldn't want to have. But we're at a time when the willingness of somebody in another branch of government to support autocracy, to undermine democracy, to subvert an election is a very high priority. Also, the fact that we have a war going on in Europe. Um, Josh Mandel actually believes in a role for America in the world. He believes in supporting Ukraine. J.D. Vance doesn't. He doesn't care, right? No, no. I just don't care about Ukraine. And it's not just that he doesn't care. J.D. Vance actually says we shouldn't be sending any aid to Ukraine until there's a wall built completed on the Mexican border. So he would undercut America's role in the world, which at the moment, to me, is the most dangerous thing for anybody to be saying. So therefore, I'm more concerned about Vance and the whole isolationist wing that I think he represents. But where are you on this? Well, no, I agree. And, and, and also, you know, one of, the, one of the tells in this race is that over the weekend, uh, J.D. Vance was very, very proud to be campaigning with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, think about this, that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who in the last month was uh, speaking at a white nationalist conference, is engaging in every sort of just reckless conspiracy theory. And J.D. Vance is saying, yeah, you know, she's with me. She is a sign of my credentials, that I am the real thing. So you have the raw, undiluted, you know, the most extreme forms of MAGA. The thing about this race that's interesting is once again, you know, testing what is disqualifying, what you can get away with. Because believe it or not, there once was a time where if you said certain crazy things, certain extreme things, certain bigoted things, you would be pushed to the fringes of the party. That whole mechanism doesn't work anymore. Not at all. And can I like slightly segue to the the other? I mean, it really struck me this weekend. The New York Times did this massive three-part deep dive into Tucker Carlson. For Bulwark readers and listeners, this is not going to be a revelation that Tucker Carlson traffics in racism on a regular basis, that he's gone to the replacement theory, that he is right adjacent to white nationalism. This is not new for you folks. But the New York Times really goes into depth. They have the receipts. They have the audio. And they don't shy away from the R word. They say that he has the most racist show in America, and it is the number one cable show. What's really striking about it, did you see Tucker Carlson's tweet about it? No. He tweeted out a picture of himself with the headline of him on the front page of the New York Times and this big shit-eating grin like he is just freaking loving it. And I think that people need to think about this. Because, and you and I may have a different perspective on this, but believe it or not, Will, there once was a time when Republicans and conservatives did not like to be called racist, when it was a real stigma and they were worried about it. And that shit-eating grin from Tucker Carlson says, they just don't care anymore. This is not going to hurt him. There's no shame. There's no chagrin. There's no fear that it's going to hurt his career in any way. Fox News is not going to be embarrassed by all of this. They are just eating it up. And I guess this is, again, one of those moments where we've normalized the worst elements. And and I know that some of our listeners are going to hate to hear this, but and I wrote about this in my newsletter. In some ways, this is the consequence of decades of, of crying wolf saying that everyone is a racist so that when the real thing, the real undiluted thing comes along and you say, hey, that guy's racist. You have a lot of people on the right that kind of this, like roll their eyes, shrug their shoulders and go this again, because you've called everyone I've ever voted for a racist. And now you don't have any vocabulary to describe this kind of thing. 
Yeah. So I didn't see this, this image of him holding the New York Times, but so this is where conservatives, not all conservatives, but Tucker Carlson types are now. It's all about owning the libs, right? Now, owning means that you're the boss, right? You own the other person. But in fact, if you do the opposite of whatever the other person does, you are not the owner, you right. are the owned, right? Yep. And there's a larger point here about cancel culture, right? So if you are a conservative and you don't like cancel culture, there are a couple of ways you can respond to that. You can oppose cancel culture. One is I am against cancellation per se. That is to say, I'm for tolerance. I'm for um, allowing people to uh, express their opinions. Mm -hmm. And that's a liberal response, right? Mm -hmm. We're gonna have viewpoints expressed. The other is to say, what is the substance of the cancellation, right? What is the position? The position that's being canceled is racism, yeah. right? And you can say, well, because you're trying to cancel racism, I'm going to be a racist. I'm gonna celebrate the thing that you're, right. that you're criticizing. And I think that's where Tucker Carlson has gone. And it's kind of charitable to call it a mistake because it's visceral with him, I believe, mm -hmm. but that's where he's gone. And that's a tragic thing for the conservative movement and for our country. It, it is a tragic thing. And I, I was thinking about Paul Ryan, uh, you remember when when Paul Ryan for a while there he was willing to call out the racists. Remember back in 2016 uh, when Trump went after that Mexican American judge and Paul Ryan was then the speaker said this was textbook racism. Uh, he got a huge amount of blowback from fellow Republicans who said, you know, you shouldn't be saying things like that because it's more important that we win this election than that we hold people accountable. Well, now where's Paul Ryan? Paul Ryan is on the board of the Fox Corporation and has been distinguished by his unwillingness to say anything about Tucker Carlson's racism. So here was a guy who saw his role as being one of the guardrails, now is on the board of the corporation at this New York Times story, again, not necessarily new, but they bring the receipts showing the thousands of times Carlson has pushed this, maybe not the most racist show in American history, but certainly the biggest racist show since Rush Limbaugh went off the air. Yeah, okay, and, and let me express a little bit of exasperation here as somebody who comes from a democratic background. If you're a Democrat nowadays, you are expected to stand up to the extreme wing of your party. You are expected to say, no, I'm not for defunding the police, I support the police. And if you don't say this, you don't say it 24 seven, you're sort of somehow in bed with, with the defund the police people. Why is it that Republicans don't pay more of a political price for not doing what you're talking about, for not standing up and saying, Tucker Carlson's programming, the, his, his rhetoric is racist, what Fox's news is doing is That's a great racist. question. I, and they just don't pay a price for it. Well, you're, you're right. I agree with you. I think part of it is just the, the hyper-tribalism. But maybe they are paying a price. The fact is that Joe Biden is in the White House, not Donald Trump, at least for the moment. We have this new poll out, which I, I caution people against wish casting. I caution people against you know, going along with too much uh, in the area of irrational exuberance. But it is this uh, new Washington Post ABC poll that shows that the 10-point Republican lead on the generic congressional ballot has now disappeared. And 46% of Americans say they'll vote for the Democrat. 45% uh, say they'll vote for the Republican. Again, I have always been a big skeptic of these generic polls but at least raises the possibility, is the crazy hurting them? You know, is the Jewish space lasers and QAnon <laughs> conspiracies and accusing everybody of, you know, being a groomer and, and all of this stuff, is, is it possible, the book banning, that it is 
creating a certain headwind for Republicans who otherwise should be just on cruise control? What do you think? I, I don't know. I'd need to look at the internal. I'd need to look at the poll. I'm very curious to find out how this might have changed. My guess is margin of error. But yeah. if it's more substantive. Well, 10 points. Yeah. What, now, to me, what's going to be interesting is if a couple other polls start to show the gap narrowing, that might exacerbate this debate that's going on at the top of the Senate Republican leadership and to some extent the House Republican leadership yeah. about whether to have an affirmative agenda, whether to come out and say, right. here's what we're going to do for elected. Because as you know, there's been a debate and Mitch McConnell has been very clear, we're better off just being the right. out party. Right. But if being the out party starts to not be enough in the polls to take the House, then there may be a change and they may start to come out with an agenda, which would then have downstream effects if people don't like the agenda. Well, the alternative to an agenda, of course, is just stop being crazy, just stop saying crazy stuff. But I don't think they have a mechanism to do that. I don't think Mitch McConnell has the mechanism to stop people from being crazy, particularly if you have, you know, J.D. Vance. Think about this. In November, you have J.D. Vance as your nominee in Ohio. You have Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania and you have Herschel Walker in Georgia, not to mention what crazy lunatic you might get out of Arizona. And of course, Ron Johnson in my, in my home state. But I, I think this is also for Democrats. Now I'll look at it from my point of view. They're constantly thinking, oh, if we have this other spending program or if we give away this money, this will change the dynamics. I think what they need to do is very, very clear. This election is either going to be a referendum or it's going to be a choice. If it's an up or down, are you happy with the way America is going? Um, the Democrats are fucked. If, on the other hand, they say, okay, for all of our flaws, look at the other guy because they are crazy, dangerous, and seditious and talk about the choice. And I wonder whether or not this generic ballot suggests that people are going, okay, we're not thrilled with what the Democrats are doing, but we're, we are looking at the other guys and it's kind of giving us second thoughts. I don't know. Maybe it's premature. I'd like to believe yeah. that swing voters will vote on the question of who supports democracy and who undermines it. Yeah. But I'm not persuaded yet that cra enough of them will. Crazy dangerous. <laughs> now, I'd say, I, 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 I think if you say democracy is on the ballot, that's fine. That's good for internal use. But crazy, dangerous, seditious, you know, us versus them. Okay, you, you, you may not like, you know, this guy, but look what you're getting here. Put a human, put a face on the Republican Party. And this is easy. Right. I mean, this is not hard to nationalize these races. I feel like I'm getting a clinic here in how to do politics. So this is like uh, a demo, sort of a conservative and a liberal having a conversation. And I'm talking here about democracy. And your language is much more effective, right? Crazy, dangerous, seditious. That's the way Republicans do campaign advertising, right? Like yeah. hit them hard, hit them, hit them in the gut. Um, so I, I need to, I need to learn your language. Yeah. Well, I, I spread the word, spread the word. Okay. <laughs> we have, we have some sound bites here. Um, this new book from the New York times reporters, uh, Alex Burns and Jonathan Martin is out, I believe today is uh -huh. today is today the pub date. And of course they were on the Sunday shows yesterday. Here's Alexander Burns from, uh, from the times talking with Chuck Todd yesterday about Mitch McConnell and Mitch McConnell's the Mitch McConnell, Liz Cheney exchanges that you have in the book are so telling about Mitch McConnell. Here's one excerpt. McConnell found the whole Liz Cheney saga confusing. In his mind, she was committing a cardinal sin, relinquishing power. Why, he wondered aloud, would Cheney willingly jeopardize her leadership post by continually condemning Trump? Just ignore him like I do, he said. It's quite telling about McConnell. 
It certainly is. And it's quite telling about Liz Cheney, too. The two of them have a conversation at one point last year where she basically tells him that is just not going to work. You can't just sort of avert your gaze from Donald Trump. If you're going to take on Donald Trump, if you're going to get rid of Donald Trump, you have to take on Donald Trump and get rid of Donald Trump. And McConnell's response at that point was basically, I don't need any more lectures from you on how to deal with Trump. That captures so much, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. It captures for the emptiness of the Republican Party, right? The, the Just to back up here a little bit, the context is Liz Cheney was not just, as Mitch McConnell supposedly says, condemning Donald Trump. Liz Cheney spoke up only because Donald Trump kept lying about the 2020 election. Liz Cheney was telling the truth. She was correcting a lie. That's what she got kicked out for, kicked out of House leadership for. The fact that Mitch McConnell is confused, mystified that anyone would do such a thing sort of speaks to where we are, right? And forgive me, Charlie, I have a weakness for inappropriate analogies. What's going on partly in Europe is that Vladimir Putin was mystified by Volodymyr Zelensky, right? He was mystified that someone would do the right thing rather than the convenient thing. Mystified that yeah. Zelensky, instead of fleeing the country, would stand up and fight for his country and say, no, we're going to, yeah. and, and lead. And similar thing is happening here where one person, Liz Cheney, is doing the right thing, the courageous thing, trying to defend her party and her country. And the other person, Mitch McConnell, is just completely baffled because he does not understand virtue. Because yes, he does right. not understand. It's the incomprehensible truth. to him. Yes. It's purely sincere. I cannot understand why you would give up the only thing that matters in this town, which is power. And it is that, that incomprehension. And by the way, I've had this conversation with conservatives who are not in elective office, who just who honestly believe that the cardinal sin here is giving up your seat at the table. Because the, it's important to have the seat at the table, even if you never actually do anything at the table. So, I mean, this is where it becomes circular. You want a seat at the table because you want to make a difference. But if you think making a difference means standing up for democratic norms and against a lying, seditious president, well, no, you can't do that. You can't make a difference there because it's all about power. It is interesting. And again, it doesn't tell us anything we didn't know about McConnell, but it kind of puts a exclamation point on it. Yeah. And it illustrates where this disease of the means and ends can end up. So it's ex the cycle is exactly the way you're describing, right? You start off saying, well, it's politics. We have to, we're leading our country. So we, uh, we need power to do that. You start rationalizing things you will do to stay in power. And what's happening now with January 6th and democracy is we're seeing the extent to which that process can go, right? So yeah. you can end up basically saying, I'm not going to stand up and defend a free election and the legitimacy of the government of the United States of America because that would cost me power. I mean, at what point have you, you know, <laughs> this is how far things can go if you don't have a line that you draw against staying in power. Well, speaking of drawing lines and not drawing lines, uh, we also have a soundbite about Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham talking about uh, the, the 25th Amendment. But let's do that after this. Let me tell you a story from last week. The folks from Eden Pure sent me some samples of their thunderstorm air cleaning ozone system. I had to say that I wasn't sure how this was going to work because they're very light and compact and somewhat small. 
And my wife was a little bit skeptical. I have to tell you, I was blown away by this product. The proven Oxy technology destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of all allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again. I put one in a downstairs bathroom and the other in our bedroom. And I have to tell you, it has completely changed the environment of the entire house. There is that sense of ozone. I said to my wife the other day, I said, just come upstairs. I want to show you something. We start walking up the stairs and I said, you notice that? She goes, wow. I wasn't expecting that because it feels like all of the windows were open and you could feel the sea breeze coming into the house. I cannot believe how effective this is. It freshens your house, gets rid of the odors like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, diapers, cooking smell, and more. And there have been more than 200,000 of these thunderstorms sold, so you know it works. But you are going to be really surprised about how it just changes the entire environment of your house. It's not just that you never breathe dirty air again or you don't have filters to buy. It doesn't take up any floor space. It just plugs directly into the wall. It's nearly completely silent. So it is great for use in bedrooms. And it comes with a six-foot USB cord. You can take it with you to travel for clean, fresh air in hotel rooms. And it's not in the same category as other air freshers. Take my word for that. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, discount code CHARLIE3, the number three, to save $200. That's three Thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200. And the shipping is free. Okay, we are back with Will Salatan, live and in person. Is it, you're not distracted anymore by the fact that we have <laughs> human beings. The handsomeness is killing me, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll live. <laughs> All right, so here's Jonathan Martin, who's the co-author of this new book, uh, Jonathan Martin from the New York Times, uh, talking uh, about Lindsey Graham. And he, in the same moment, he gets on the phone, and he telephones the White House counsel. Pat and Cipollone. you're hearing all of this, firsthand yeah. account here. This is yes. not from sources. I'm in the room. And he calls Pat Cipollone, and says, if Trump doesn't tell these people to go home, meaning the rioters in the Capitol, we're going to call for the 25th Amendment. Yeah, Lindsey. Lin Lindsey Graham leading the charge. Again, this is another one of these stories where it feels like they had this very short-lived spasm of recognizing how terrible it was, but it passed. And of yeah. course, so many things have passed for Lindsey Graham. And it passed real fast for real Lindsey fast. Graham. All right, so Lindsey Graham's, according to this story, which, I mean, which was directly witnessed, by the way, by Jonathan Martin. He's so this weird. is not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's in the room with Lindsey as he's doing this. So here's Lindsey Graham calling the White House counsel and threatening to, if you are calling the White House and threatening to invoke the 25th Amendment, that's pretty good evidence that you should be. I mean, you're already saying the guy has gone so far, yes. right, that he's out of control. The next day, literally the next day, Lindsey Graham is holding a press conference. And explaining what happened in January 6th, and he has some little bit of moral criticism, but he's asked repeatedly whether Congress should be invoked the 25th Amendment. And he says no, again and again. And he says, you know, Trump is just frustrated. He blames the president's legal advice. You know, <laughs> it wasn't the guy's legal advice. It was that he was determined to subvert the election one way or another. And everything we've learned about January 6th is that Trump just went from one means to another to another to get to achieve his end of, of staying in power. And so Lindsey Graham is saying one thing in publicly, the day after privately, he is telling the White House that he's, he's threatening to do this. 
Yeah, we could spend a lot of time on Lindsey Graham, but I think I feel like we already have, and I don't think there's any mysteries there. Well, <laughs> maybe maybe there are, but we're we're not we're not going to solve. All right, let's uh, switch gears and talk about Ukraine. Uh, Nancy Pelosi actually went to Kiev over the weekend. Congratulations, because I mean, you know, when when you actually go, there's there's performative, and it's sure it's performative, but when you're actually there in a war zone, that sends a signal. I guess I had only one quibble. Uh, I personally wish she would have made that a bipartisan trip. It was just Democrats. I mean, this is certainly not disqualifying in any way, but this is a great moment to show bipartisan congressional support for Ukraine, especially because like the Ukrainians, they don't exist in a bubble. They know what's going on with the election. They know that Congress might switch and it you know, it would be helpful to reassure them that, by the way, simply changing the parties in in power will not change America's commitment. So, uh, again, a small loss opportunity. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, first of all, in terms of the bravery, she's going there. These Democratic leaders are going there shortly after missile strikes on yes. Kiev. So it's not, you know, without risk. Yeah, there's real risk. And that was when I believe the missile strikes were when the U.N. Secretary General was there. So clearly the Russians are not it's not like because Nancy Pelosi is there, they're not going to shoot at her. They, they they already did this. So that I agree with you that it's good to show some resolve. Um, it's I think it's very important. A couple of things. One, that Pelosi went there and she didn't just go there. She said, we're with you to the end. And she wasn't just, those weren't just words because Biden had just said, we'd need $33 billion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's, I mean, the Biden administration and the House Democrats have sent a very clear signal to Ukraine and to Putin we're going to be there to the end. And if you're, and which is really important because there are going to be negotiations to end this war. And to the extent the United States makes clear that we will send unlimited money, right, and provide a guarantee of support, it provides a kind of deterrence against the Russians, right, where if you don't make peace, there's going to be some strength on the other side, and it's going to be us. I mean, there's no question about it. There's been, I feel like since you and I last talked, uh, but there, there's been this uh, this sea change in terms of the willingness of the United States and the West to send uh, all of those weapons they'd been reluctant to to send. And also, I get the sense that we're, we're changing our objectives. When you have the Secretary of Defense say that one of our goals is to uh, weaken Russia militarily. I mean, this is, we've come a long way in 65, 66 days. Yeah, yeah. And one other thing about that, that statement, you might think it's kind of unusual for the United States to come out publicly and say, our goal is to destroy yeah. your military in the field, right? Why would you say that if it is your goal? See, I don't think that is the goal. I yeah. don't think that is at all. I think the goal is to convey to Putin that the longer you keep your forces in the field in Ukraine and you think that's Ukraine's problem, no, we're going to make that your problem. We're going to send them enough weapons to destroy your military. I mean, every time you're taking territory, you're losing men, you're losing troops, you're losing arms. Right. And to the extent that Putin starts to get the message that every day he's there, he's losing his military, that becomes an incentive for him to cut a deal. And that's the only message that Putin is going to learn. That's the only way he's going to get out. We're in the stage of the war where it's, it is a battle of attrition. And it's very, very clear that no matter how many tanks the Ukrainians lose, no matter how much equipment they lose, there's the possibility it will be replenished. And that also changes because if you're Russia, you're thinking you got this little country here. All we need to do is grind them down, grind them down, grind them down. They're going to run out of bullets. They're going to run out of missiles. They'll run out of tanks. Not necessarily. And that obviously changes the game. So, okay. So as somebody from the other side of the political spectrum, could you help me with something? Because I have not paid a lot of attention lately. I am not a student of Noam Chomsky. I tuned in over the weekend. And you correct me if I get this wrong because I was sort of passed over. 
he's on somebody's podcast and he said something like, well, fortunately, there's one statesman in the world who is pushing for a negotiated settlement rather than prolonging this war. And that statesman is Donald J. Trump. Okay, I mean, for fuck's sake, <laughs> I, I know we're sort of achieved the singularity where this weird thing where Glenn Greenwald is so far left that he's become a right wing Fox News troll. But Noam Chomsky talking about Donald Trump as the statesman standing up against endless war. What the hell? Help me here. Okay, so Chomsky praising Donald Trump was the culmination of something that's been going on for a while. And 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 so the fact that he brought Trump's name to, into it makes it easier for people to see how dangerous the idea is. But it isn't because he used Trump's name. It's the ideas themselves that Chomsky is promulgating here. Here, I just want to talk to young people, progressive people who believe in peace, right? I mean, we should all believe in peace. We should all support peace. We should all support diplomacy. But there are evil people in this world. They do not listen to niceness. They do not listen to pleas for peace. And the peace deal that they will cut with you is that how much of your country will you let them have? And if you let them have part of your country, they move on to the next country. And we know that in Vladimir Putin's case because he took parts of Ukraine in 2014. He took the Donbass parts of it. He took the Crimea. And they then used them to launch attacks on more. And now the Russians are threatening Moldova. They're going to go as far as we let them. Mm -hmm. So Noam Chomsky's view of peace is you have to accommodate. He uses – and so – Chomsky, since the beginning of this war, since the beginning of this phase of the war this year, has been talking about diplomacy, accommodation, and Chomsky tells people the alternative is war, the alternative is nuclear war, we mustn't have that, so we must be realistic about the world. And that is a recipe for capitulation, and not even for capitulation for the sake of peace. You don't get peace. You get the capitulation, and you get more war, right, because the aggressor continues to move. So what I want young people to understand is if you want peace, it's great to talk about peace, it's great to offer peace, but you have to be willing to stand up militarily to the aggressor because nothing else will stop the aggressor and force the aggressor to make peace. And Chomsky has a kind of realism, which is sort of the language that Chomsky uses to talk about Russia is he used the analogy of a hurricane. You can't stop the hurricane. He says, Crimea is off the table. Why is Crimea off the table? Because Chomsky accepts whatever Putin will allow him to accept. And what Putin wants eventually is to take over more and more of Europe and reconstitute the Soviet empire. So I recognize that. I recognize that ideology. I disagree with it, obviously. Uh, it's got a, a long pedigree. How do you get to Donald Trump statesman? How do you get from that to Donald Trump statesman? I mean, have I missed the, the Donald Trump diplomatic initiatives or Donald Trump on the phone to Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump giving a speech where he specifically talks about his proposals? No, no. Trump doesn't have any proposals that are distinct. It's just that Trump is the only one, the only Western, can I, can I use the word leader? The only Western high political figure, as Chomsky called him. He's the only one who continues to advocate appeasement. Right. So Chomsky is embracing Trump, not because he's Trump, but because they, they agree on appeasement. And my argument would be you should notice the fact that they both agree on that because it means they are both wrong. Appeasement is dangerous in this case. We've seen the fruit of appeasement in that what's happened in Ukraine from 2014 to the present. And the fact that Chomsky is embracing Trump illustrates why both of them are wrong. So 
is Trump actually, does he have a proposal that Ukraine should give the Russians X, Y, and Z to end the war? Or is it just the usual atmospherics about, guys, can't we work this out? And I know that Vladimir Putin is a savvy genius who loves his country. I mean, is there actually, I guess I'm going to the word states. Is, is there any <laughs> statesmanship here or is there just sort of the, you know, flamboyant performative sucking up to Vladimir Putin gestures from the latter. Okay. Okay. The latter. Here's Chomsky's words. About statesmanship what is doing a lot of work. I, there. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and Chomsky's being way too, fr yeah. too friendly to Trump in the way he's describing this. The actual words that Chomsky used to describe what Trump was proposing was to quote, move toward negotiations and diplomacy instead of escalating the war. Try to see if you can bring about an accommodation. So all that stuff, negotiations, diplomacy, accommodation, and remember, remember, let's go back to yeah. 2019. Remember Trump and Zelensky sitting in that press conference where it's like, oh, Zelensky's trying to like look like deer in the headlights. And Trump is actually saying to him, as Putin is like in his country, just you know, destroying parts of his country, Trump is saying, I really hope you and Vladimir can work out a deal, yeah. right? And you know, yeah. Zelensky's like, I'm the sheep trying to work out a deal with the wolf, really? Yeah. I mean, we all wanted a deal at some point. It's just that at some point there should be some some meat or some strategy here. And I just, I just don't see it. So what are you looking at this week? What are you, what are you working on? I'm kind of interested in the Trump's history with Ukraine. This is one thing that I want oh. to look at because there's a story being told now about how Donald Trump would have, would have stood up to Absolutely. Vladimir Putin. Would would never have, have happened. Right? Yeah. And so I've been looking at a little bit of the history of that. And the same, some of the same people who are peddling that nonsense were saying during the impeachment crisis over Ukraine. It's not that he has a corrupt interest in trying to bring down Joe Biden's yeah. campaign. They were saying he just has a visceral opposition to Ukraine and to funding it, which was true. So it's amusing now for them to be telling the opposite story. Will this become Hunter Biden's war? <laughs> At some point, are we headed there? Because I, I will confess, I do not watch Fox News on a regular basis, but every once in a while, you know, I will see one of these analyses, you know, saying that you have CNN covering this, NBC is covering this, CBS is covering this, and Fox News, 36 segments on Hunter Biden. And I'm pretty confident I'm not missing much, but th there's a world out there where Hunter Biden's laptop in Ukraine and the war, there's, there's, there's got to be a, an alignment of the planets here, right? Yeah. I, the thing about Hunter Biden is I almost don't want to spend time talking about I know, it now I because either. I believe Republicans will take the House. And therefore, the next two years are guaranteed to be investigations of Hunter Biden nonstop, right? And and God bless him. I'm, I'm willing to let them take Hunter Biden as far as I can tell. What he tried to do was morally corrupt, okay, so if not legally, right? That starts in January, doesn't it? <laughs> January 2013, the endless Hunter Biden hearings. This would be a good time to book my cruise to a, a, the Antarctica, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. And, and to be fair, in the spirit of truth, I believe that what Hunter Biden did was certainly morally corrupt, yeah. if not legally corrupt. I just would implore people to keep in mind the distinction between Hunter and Joe, right? What, what I don't, I see no evidence that Joe Biden did anything correct. Yeah, I am definitely not ever going to vote for uh, Hunter Biden for president. He is, <laughs> he is definitely, I wouldn't even support him for United States Senator from Ohio. Will Salatan, thanks for joining me again. And great to meet you in person. This it, is fantastic. It was a delight, Charlie. We should do it again in the next 10 years <laughs> when we leave the house. Thank you for listening today. But before we sign off, do you hate hearing ads on the podcast? Because I have a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus, where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network, like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. 
you can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.